This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we can talk about in this episode include... Invisible Menace. How many Gashu abilities? And my last bookshelf raid for the duration. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But hold on, I'm looking around the gaming hut and nobody's there. And yet the dice just rattled and that miniature just moved across the room. And those Doritos are crunching in midair in a way that does not bear close examination, quite frankly, because beloved Patreon backer Brian is invoking his inalienable right as a Patreon backer to demand that we tell me more, or rather tell Brian more, uh, this time regarding my review of the recent Lee Huanel Invisible Man movie. Uh, Brian asks, how might a gumshoe GM set up the suit as a bad thing for multiple people to have access to? And what nods to H.G. Wells might make for a good twists on the encounter? Uh, Robin, did you see Lee Wannell's uh, surprisingly non-bad Invisible Man? It was actually kind of good. I, I've yet to see that. So uh, so no spoilers, please. No spoilers, please. Well, there's a man. And he turns invisible. And he's invisible. And, and he's bad news. Suit. There's a suit. It's a cool tech suit that uh, he designed. He's a world-leading expert in optics. And uh, you wear the suit, and it's covered with weird little fisheye lenses that look like eyes. So it looks very, very cool. Uh, the, the the prop designer, whoever they were, deserves a, a big uh, Australian kiss from Lee Wannell. It's a great bad thing. I mean, it looks like a, a piece of tech. It's like a, it's like a green glowing tube. It's like no matter what that tube does, it's bad. Uh, same thing with this suit. You, you, you've got that suit hanging there in its stark industrial modern cabinet. And again, uh, we're all the way back to the, you know, the notion of modernism as a signifier for evil. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that in a film, Robin. And then the suit's just hanging there in that stark white space. It's very, very great. It's a, it's a good visual. I mean, visually, the film is terrific anyway. Although, of course, since it's about an invisible guy, I guess it would have to be, right? Right. And, and structurally, I doubt it makes the uh, clever shift of making the invisible man the 
antagonist rather than the anti-hero. Yeah, since we know that the Invisible Man is going to turn crazy, let's just, you know, like like we always say, start at the actual beginning where the Invisible Man is crazy and running amok. And in this case, he's uh, stalking his ex-girlfriend, uh, Elizabeth Moss, and uh, uh, brouhaha uh, emerges uh, there's there there's bad doings by the Invisible Man. It's it's really good. Uh, the Invisible Man as monster flick is uh, is a great uh, idea to actually lean into that. That's a good thing. And, and speaking of monster flicks, uh, there mm-hmm. is already a gumshoe uh, homage to the Invisible Man, the classic version in Shadows Over Filmland. Uh, that's my scenario, uh, the non Euclidean man. And uh, it does the the thing that you uh, that makes sense to do uh, with the Invisible Man is again obviously in this instance he uh, has to be the antagonist rather than the antihero because I suppose you could do a scenario where one of the player characters gets the suit uh, and then bad things happen but that's hard to imagine how you would successfully pull that off well without just sort of torquing that player character's agency right. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe you do that in a one shot where it's like, oh, you've put on the suit. Here's uh, the psychological consequences of being invisible, and you have to play them out scene by scene. Then you it's could sort do of that a, in a one to one. Yeah. Right. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. But the uh, the obvious way to do that with a group of player characters is to have the that as the focus of the killer taking victims one by one. Uh, the victims are game master characters uh, in a convention run you make. Uh, start knocking off the player characters uh, after the midway point. But that's sort of the standard way uh, to do it. And I guess what we're being asked to do here is to come up with a a non-standard version in which I guess the events of the film have already taken place. And then you're doing the sequel uh, where uh, there's more than one suit. And uh, so the mystery then becomes... uh, how did the suit get out, which is not the big mystery, but the big mystery is how do you uh, then uh, find out who has taken the multiple suits or uh, taken the plans and built the multiple suits, and how do you find them and track them down and stop them from doing uh, whatever terrible thing it is that they're uh, trying to do. And uh, I think we can envision a range of terrible things that a yeah. uh, gang of invisible uh, people with invisibility suits would do. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's uh, sort of you said that who who took the suit is is not the question, but it kind of is the question, because if the suit was taken by, let's say, the Chinese government, then good luck tracking it down unless you're super spies, because they're going to be using it to, you know, murder dissidents in the night or uh, sneak into Vietnam and blow up border uh, stations and it's not really going to be uh, the same sort of thing as a horror stalker uh, sort of fear itself game. Um, if, on the other hand, it was stolen by the optics scientist's obsessed father who wants revenge, well, then you've got a pretty good idea what he's doing with it. He's going to come after Elizabeth Moss. He's going to come after the player characters uh, because they've involved themselves somehow in the story of the Invisible Man. If the player characters killed the Invisible Man in the first set, maybe they're going to he's going to come after them in the in the second set because again it it's a it's a classic green goblin-y revenge sort of story so finding out who stole the suit is i would say pretty crucial to figuring out how to how to how to find the invisible uh, malfeasance and get them back yes it's it's essential step number 1 mm-hmm. so so it starts off uh, there is a suit incident that occurs and mm-hmm. uh i guess it uh we want to escalate uh, the situation. So the initial incident seems like there's uh, one person uh, with a suit and then partway through, 
another incident occurs in which it becomes clear that there must be uh, multiple suit wearers. And it's harder to envision a, uh, a, a, I guess we don't necessarily even have to confine this to uh, horror per se. So you could do sort of a fun uh, kind of, uh, if this is kind of one-shotty, it can be a crime drama where you are uh, tracking down you know, a gang of criminals who are uh, using invisibility to what would be a, I mean, the thing about the invisible man, unless he's uh, overtly menacing, is there's something sort of just sort of funny and amusing about, you know, the bags of money walking out from the bank. And of course, as soon as the invisible man picks up an object, he's no longer invisible. So he's, yeah, he's invisible, but carrying an object. I mean, I guess what you could do and and you'd put the invisible man on some kind of like, uh, safe cracker or whatever. And so the invisible man safe cracker and his team would go into the vault of the bank. Let's stick to the bank robbery. They don't do an invisible holdup because that's dumb. No one can see who's holding the gun on you. It would just be confusing them, not, not um, uh, uh, making them give you money, but then they walk into the bank. And then when the bank vault is shut, then they can loot it as much as they want break it open from the inside and walk out under cover of darkness. And yeah, they're, they're comically carrying bags, but it's night and there's just a night watchman who they can easily take out with their invisible suits. And uh, then they just hop into the, into the waiting uh, panel van and, and drive away. Um, and you can imagine other things like um, uh, you can do it like a, a daring daylight robbery of a jewelry store uh, where they come in and they smash the cases on the counter and it, they're invisible and the money and the jewels just sort of fly up into the air and go into a bag. And then the bag sort of hot foots it out the door. And again, this, this is where the getaway is key. It, it, it pops into a car driven by a non-invisible man or it, you know, gets dropped. Uh, I, I think this is a cool visual. Uh, the bag flies out. It gets hooked onto a drone and then the drone zooms away over this, over the uh, city. And then there's no way you can chase the drone because it's like zooming away uh, like a little mini helicopter and the invisible man just sort of like stops and sort of just ambles down the sidewalk, socially distancing from everyone. Now, I, I guess the thing I'm, I'm missing with that previous suggestion though, is the, the thing that's scary about um, invisible uh, enemies is their invasiveness, right? Is that they yeah. can, uh, they're coming at you and they can be anywhere and your normal ability to uh, sense danger uh, is uh, thrown out the window. So uh, perhaps we're talking about like an esoteric style scenario where, uh, the uh, the suit uh, appears to be tech, but of course is actually powered by um, uh, tiny demons inside the suit. And uh, an esoteric uh, cell uh, manages to... The suit is uh, actually made of the material of the veil. Yes. And so uh, the, uh, the, the, me- the membrane is, is uh, being used in order to break the membrane. And uh, this is a, a vengeance story where they are... Uh, a cell is coming after the Ordo Veritatis, it's coming after the player characters, and it is targeting, uh, first of all, just trying to uh, gain intel on them. And so what, what are the, you know, you ask a player to uh, specify a terrible secret that uh, what's, a, what's the worst thing that nobody has seen you do, and then all of a sudden someone has seen you do it. Right. Or a, a GMC uh, member of the organization is targeted and exposed. And so it starts off with sort of subtle things with uh, what would be blackmail material used to expose agents. And initially it's a security problem. And then they start coming after the uh, the characters. And so you have to figure out where 
the suits are and which cell is coming at you in order to uh, locate the suits and uh, and counteract them in some way. But in the meantime, they can be in the backseat of your car with a knife. They can be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, under your bed. They can listen in uh, on all of your deliberations, which, of course, uh, players always really, really hate uh, having. The only thing yeah. worse than having the, the game master hear your deliberations is having the enemy characters know them. Yeah, I, I think that that scenario specifically would work really well in the context of a campaign where you've thwarted a bunch of cells. So you've got a bunch of suspects as to why they're coming after you. And you've also established in previous play that there's an archive or a warehouse uh, or a, or a place where the Ordo Veritatis stores all the stuff that's too dangerous that like you found a thing and you, there's a breaching hand and you're like, well, we can't destroy the breaching hand. It's full of demonry. And the Ordo says, don't worry. This has happened a lot. We put it in this special box. We take it off to our warehouse or our, a secure facility in Montana or wherever it is. Um, I guess you wouldn't put it in Montana. You put it in Iowa because the mundanity of Iowa would act as a, as an insulator. Anyway, our secret facility in Iowa, wherever it is that you, that you take it to. And then that's happened a couple of few times in the previous adventures. And then when the invisible man, uh, the invisible man's uh, start running around and uh, the characters are being blackmailed. And first, they don't even know if it's an invisible man and they're being persecuted and tormented. And the order of Veritatis is like, well, I'm sorry, you have to give up your invisible badge. You're, you're now a risk to the operation. Uh, and then we have to monitor you for outer dark. Oh, look at that. There's a manual of demonry right there in your dresser drawer. That's, that's very suspicious. How did that get there? I don't know. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, Boom, the big uh, third act turn is the archive, the Iowa archive has been raided by guys in invisible suits and it's busted open and all the uh, demonry and bad artifacts that they've ever put in there are back out and in the hands of the invisible gang, uh, the invisible cell, I guess you would be. Uh, and, uh, and, and that becomes the big climax where not only are you facing a bunch of losers in invisibility suits, which is bad enough, but also they have all the, the big bad items from the last, you know, four or five scenarios plus legendary awfulness. Like, you know, I don't know, the spear of Orcus or something that, uh, you've built up as, as, as big juju in your game. Right. Uh, now, as far as uh, bringing in, uh, nods to HG Wells, I guess one thing you could do is you could, have, you know, one of the players sort of lured in by someone who's pretending to have swallowed an HG Wells. Uh, it's a potion, right? In the Wells version. It's a, it's a chemical treatment of, of your, um, uh, of your, of your body. I don't know if it's a, taken in potion form or if it's uh, smeared on you or in the novel as well. He's an optics expert. Uh, so I assume that you could say that it was an, an arrangement of lenses that, that treats you or you, or you could say it's a, it's a salve or an ointment or something. Right. So you can have someone come to you and say, Oh no, I've used this salve or ointment and I've turned invisible and oh, what am I going to do? And then it turns out that it's not a salve or ointment at all. It's a suit, but the, the salve has been, is, is a full of poison and it's been laid out there for the player characters as a, as a thing to tempt them. It's like, oh, we've got an invisibility ointment that's dangerous. It might turn us invisible. Uh, are we going to use this? Of course you are. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. when you do, it turns out to be a poison, right? It's a trap, um, right. which is the thing that inverts the, the Wells thing. You can have a scene where 
again, if they're maintaining this ruse for some reason that they're uh, stuck being invisible as opposed to having a suit that they can take on off, you could have someone show up uh, with the bandages wrapped around them with that classic image and then unfurl the bandages and attempt to fool them into, I guess, again, not, not re to, to try to you know, throw them off the scent. So I guess in that uh, instance, it could be uh, you know, an, an ex-agent of the Ordo Veritatis who's gone rogue, who they're uh, pursuing or has been drawn into the conspiracy and is used to fool them in some way. I know what it is. There's the, the, the chemical that they discover is, is, is terribly poisonous and dangerous and caustic. And after great work, they, they save their, their fellow character's life or whatever. And then some branch of the Ordo Veritatis has been trying to work on seeing invisibility glasses and... It turns out that you can also do a tribute to the man with x-ray eyes and they've got the glasses, but the trouble is they see too far. And so you've got a bandaged figure wearing dark glasses and it turns out, oh, it's, it's what, it's one of the Ordo Veritatis guys who also fell for that same trap. He used the caustic stuff on his body. That's why he has to wrap himself up in bandages and he's using the, the dark glasses to try and see the invisible, but he's seen past the membrane and now he's mad. And so you've got a madman who's wandering around in glasses who has weird powers that they don't understand. It's like he's invisible because he can use the glasses to see them doing secret things. He just can't, you know, necessarily get to it unless he can also ectoplasmically uh, project as a result of his glasses, who can say, but that can be a, another red herring and a visual tie uh, hilariously to the invisible man. And the way that the outer dark entities work is they uh, don't tend to be all that organized or sort of chaos agents. So another way to go at it is simply that they, create a number of these suits and leave them out for um, various uh, independent bad apples to get a hold of. And so the first one goes ahead and does the invisible man thing of uh, stalking his girlfriend, and the next one uh, robs a bank. And so it's uh, that until you find uh, the warehouse where there's the little tear in reality allowing these suits to grow, uh, that it's a whole lot of unrelated people who are uh, causing uh, malfeasance, and therefore you can... Um, you can do all of them, right? You could do the, the bank robbery story and the stocking story, and you can have, uh, you know, the first person who puts on the suit can't take it off, and so then they do have to put the, wrap the bandages on them and so forth, and uh, you could uh, do uh, every available Invisible Man uh, uh, plot as part of one scenario, and then the, the final thing is to, is to find the warehouse where the invisibility suits are growing and, uh, and stop them from doing that. And once we've uh, put every single plot into one plot, it's time for us to turn invisible, head through this commercial, and turn visible again on the other side. In these eldritch and or vampire fleeing times, you may have only one player cooped up with you. What better time then to go to the bundle of holding to scoop up Pelgrane Press's flagship gumshoe one-to-one -one game, Cthulhu Confidential, featuring not one but three noir detectives to combine the hard-boiled and the terrifying. And if you upgrade your bundle, it includes not one but two one-to-one -one games because you also get Knights Black Agent solo ops. The starter tier includes bonus scenarios, the howling fog, the house up in 
in the hills. One for the money. The upgrade also nabs you more Cthulhu Confidential scenarios and an extra solo ops run to boot. This deal can't last long. In fact, it only lasts till May 18th. So grab the tension, the mystery, and the one-to-oneness of it all. Today at bundleofholding.com slash presents slash confidential. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Scott Ryder asks Ken and Robin, now that the Yellow King RPG is done, Scott is asking Robin, if you worked on a second edition of Ashen Stars, would you reduce the number of investigative and general abilities? Robin, would you? Um, I'm not sure that I would. And uh, that's because there's two things going on in terms of the number of abilities offered in any version of, of gumshoe. And uh, there is the question of simplicity, how much simplicity uh, versus crunchiness do people like? And uh, definitely even the same people who liked gumshoe crunchier earlier uh, tend to seem to like it somewhat less crunchy now. Uh, and people, I think, more highly value uh, a simpler uh, character generation process now than they did a decade plus ago, uh, just because the more games you play, the uh, more often you want to shorten that character generation. On the other hand, having a session zero is even more of a thing than it used to be. And so there's the uh, just the ease of use angle. And clearly, Yellow King role-playing game is easier to to use in terms of character generation. But part of that is because I expect you to do it four times. Uh, because you're playing yeah. <laughs> four different sets of characters over time. And uh, the other part of it, though, is uh, genre emulation. Is uh, how much does the genre care about how finely grained all of the characters' different specialties are? And therefore, what will the players care about? Will it feel like, uh, in this instance, a space opera game if everybody just has four investigative abilities each and one of them is an interpersonal ability versus on space opera shows, are people constantly talking about all of the fine gradations of little skills that they have? Are the uh, fact that everybody is basically almost kind of the same kind of character, they're a starship crewman or crew person. And so then you have to kind of work to make sure that uh, the doctor's specialties are different than the security officer's specialties and so forth. Would it be just as fun to just have an ability that was essentially your post on the ship and that was everything? And then you had a super long list of billet points that suggested uh, what that what abilities come with that post. And in that case, is that actually ease of use if you are have one ability that has 15 bullet points that you then have to consult to remind yourself what you do. And so in the Yellow King, you know, your art students in Paris, it makes sense that you just have a, a small number of uh, abil- uh, rather broad abilities and you can all be, even though your art students, aside from that, quite different from one another. But I'm not sure that what you would collapse those skills into that would actually really be easier to use. Am I making sense here? I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the thing is that, I mean, you, you run into a, a couple of problems with a shrunk skill set. 
Uh, first, uh, you lose niche protection uh, because if there's only five skills and every character can have average points in those five skills, then it's harder to, you know, make your character ex- special, especially if the only other thing you have in, co- you know, is that your art students or murder hobos or whatever. With a broader list of skills, you obviously have ability to define character in a more fine-grained way at the risk of uh, running into, you know, oh, there's too many skills for me to to keep track of and, and get overload that way. And in some genres, I think it makes sense to have slightly more skills than you're comfortable with. And things like science fiction and techno thriller are absolutely those genres because they're about the existence of super competencies but they're about the existence of a lot of different kinds of they're they're about privileging that kind of specialized knowledge in a way that a um uh, a dungeon stabbing game can basically get by with relatively few skills because it's not about that it's it's not about it's about the strength of your of your thews um are they mighty are they less than mighty that's the big question so i i feel like notions of what is the optimal list of of abilities or what is the optimal number of abilities sort of founder on the fact that it depends on the type of the game and the uh, and even the genre being emulated so in addition to the sort of the the keeping tracking numbers that you're talking about and the simplicity of play numbers i think that there's also genre feel uh to consider and in addition we've talked previously on this uh on this podcast about the notion that there are specific abilities that exist on the character sheet just to remind the players what kind of game you're in. So library use on uh, Call of Cthulhu, it really sells what's this game to have a skill called library use in a way that uh, forensic entomology, to pick a skill at complete random, uh, <laughs> sells esoterists as being a game about creepy, crawly, disgusting police procedure. Yes, and and you want to not only preserve niche protection, but the idea that there's a difference between different people filling a slot in space opera, I think more so uh, than in a game like Yellow King, so that uh, you want the second cons officer that somebody plays in the group to also have something distinguishing about them, as opposed to just being exactly like the previous cons officer, where uh, if you have a replacement character who's another bohemian in Paris, you're less worried about that because the idea of them having separate defined roles is is not a thing. But you might want to have, uh, you know, the the second comms officer is also a xenobiologist or uh, is uh, also an expert in uh, TAVAC fighting rituals or whatever. Um, there's also the question of uh, general abilities. And again, uh, Yellow King sort of collapses the general abilities, but then it expands them in other places. So it doesn't do the division between uh, shooting and uh, and scuffling and uh, weapons that some other gumshoe games, particularly the ones inspired by Call of Cthulhu, do. Uh, but then again, once you break out from the first sequence, the art students one, to the uh, alternate reality uh, war story, uh, suddenly there's athletics and there's battlefield. Mm-hmm. So in the first one, uh, if you are subjected to an artillery uh, barrage, you uh, use athletics to not get hit. But in, a, in the wars where uh, battlefield hazards are coming up all the time, there's a specialized thing that's separate from your uh, athletics ability. And then all of a sudden you've got a morale ability, which enables you to uh, boost 
uh, other characters, uh, particularly non-player characters, morale, which was not part of the first one. And so one of the reasons, again, that there is a tighter list in Yellow King is to then make you notice the variations and the complexities uh, uh, more. So I, I, I guess I'm returning then to my previous uh, main point, which is that ease of use is one important thing, but also uh, feel. Uh, and this is a, you know, the abilities are the main way in Gumshoe that you wind up doing things on a system level and interacting with the, uh, with the rules. And therefore, I think even sort of subtle changes from one to the next make a, a big difference. And, and part of the whole point of that is that there are different abilities or sometimes the same ability with different names between the four sequences, which would be uh, completely unbearable if there were also a very lengthy list of uh, abilities. Yeah. Uh, also, um, Yellow King does more to just get away from the problem of making sure that everybody has every ability by having kits. So mm -hmm. that if you have, uh, you know, six to seven players and everybody gets a kit, that's taken care of. But again, that's not necessarily something that would feel like space opera if you did it in Ash and Stars. Yeah. I mean, I guess... Uh, and if you want to hear me blaspheme twice in one suggestion, I'm going to do it. Uh, I guess the, uh, the possible way to do a shrunken set of, uh, of skills within Ashen Stars, not substituting for the Ashen Stars characters is if you had some sort of recurring situation where you were playing your character, but under a variant set of reality and that could be either there's an a cyberspace uh, a holodeck god forbid <laughs> blasphemy number one or some sort of uh consensual uh maybe like a, a, a psychoactive uh chemical reality uh so you're doing sort of a philip k dickian uh ashen star some sort of you know science fictiony new wave uh, thing, uh, where they all get high on some planet and, and, and join in some sort of, uh, and then the, 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 basically it's a, it's a spice, uh, you know, high that everyone can, can join in consensually to solve some stories. You could imagine having the character that you play, your, your hologram, uh, self, your holodeck self use a smaller, tighter set of abilities. And even maybe, uh, if you wanted it to be very, uh, uh weird that you use quick shock when you're in the holodeck and, uh, regular gumshoe when you're in regular space. And so the, the quality of, of the universe feels, uh, different. That seems like a long way around, uh, the deck to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, I think what we call a counter simplification. Right. And you'd have a lot of, you'd have to have a lot of holodeck or, uh, adventures to, to justify it. I could see doing something like that in Trail of Cthulhu where, uh, right now, uh, uh, or Fall of Delta Green, right now the player characters are in, are entering the dreamlands. And it's basically like you did with, um, uh, Dreamhounds. It's basically the same set with one or two different abilities, dreamscaping and whatnot. But you could imagine a world, a, a game in which dreamlands are baked into the pie. And so you have little dreamland skills boxes that they flip into whenever they're in the dreamlands and that that, you know, tighter, narrower set of skills indicates the, the very unlovecraftian concept that your dream self is a smaller, simpler box than your living self. I guess to be proper to Lovecraftian, your dream self would be the one with a billion abilities. Suddenly you're playing, I don't know, um, uh, claw law or something, um, an iron crown role playing in, in the dreamlands. And then you go back to gumshoe in the real world because it's, it's simple and, 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 and modern. <laughs> 
yes, you're trying to dream your way uh, from successively more complicated uh, systems into a system you like playing. So you start with the Morrow project. (laughs) (laughs) That's the trouble, right? Is the characters are like, no, no, we like, we like over the edge. We want to stay in this setting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think uh, since we're just now randomly bouncing uh, towards settings, I think we can conclusively say that we've strayed from our original question and uh, therefore should stray entirely into, uh, I, I think, uh, I think there might be a potpourri of topics uh, coming up. So uh, let's, uh, let's play an exciting commercial and then get to that. The best of Ask Fageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Prevent this podcast from being Dewey decimated by pitching in with such beloved Patreon backers as Joshua Brumley, Luke Silburn, Michael Bowman, Paul and Cleo Bushland, and Steve K. So it's time once more, and perhaps uh, for the last time in in a good while, to uh, visit Ken's bookshelf. This is the segment, or in fact, two bumper segments where uh, we vicariously paw through the books that Ken acquired on a recent trip. And uh, since uh, the whole thing of uh, leaving the house to go to conventions where there are faraway bookstores, uh, it's going to be less of a thing for a while. Some might say that uh, I uh, deliberately spaced this out so that we could en- enjoy a Ken's bookshelf on you know week, week nine of the lockdown. Or some others might say that I just failed to notice Ken's list for a while and... <laughs> Incorporated <laughs> in the script. But who can say? Who, who can say indeed? Uh, but here we go. Uh, let's uh, break into your California hall and uh, start off with uh, the Empires of Ancient Eurasia, the first Silk Road era, 100 BCE to 250 CE by Craig Benjamin. Yeah, this is uh, the first in a series of books by Benjamin on uh, the, the notion that ancient Eurasia cre- became one political and economic space with the creation of the Silk Road, which he dates to circa 100 BC, placing it just barely in the uh, Hellenistic era and thus grist for my mill. Um, I strongly suspect that you can at least push it back another hundred years to the uh, unification of China under the Han. 
and uh, maybe even farther than that, because, you know, we, we still have the existence of uh, places like Fergana, uh, which grew all those horses, uh, shipping them to China didn't suddenly start in 200 BC, I suspect. So I believe that you can argue that there's an earlier Silk Road, but uh, being a real genuine scholar, Craig Benjamin has to go by the evidence on the ground, which he does pretty well. I, I would say this is a this is a good look at a, at, a, at a topic in an area that I needed. Plus, uh, I found it really cheap somehow, so I was very happy with that. It's it's a it's it's a good overview of of the of the era that it talks about, and the era that it talks about is not. Uh, super, even in books about the Silk Road, they usually sort of skip the, 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 the earliest parts with the, with the Romans and the Han and go into the, the stuff where there's tons of, of data about the, the, the Tang Empire and later than that. Funny how people like to write about periods where there's evidence. Yes, it's the old lamppost theory of history writing. Uh, next we come to Lost Harbor, the controversy over Drake's California Anchorage. By Warren L. Hanna. And naive of uh, fool that I am, I was unaware that there was a controversy over Drake's California anchorage. What would that be? Uh, the controversy is that uh, the coincidence that he would land at Drake's Cove just seems too crazy for people. Uh, Drake's Cove is in um, Marin County, California, or Marin County, California, uh, and it's where people assume that Drake landed in 1579 because it fits his chart and they had it handy. I think this this identification was come up with by geographers in the 19th century, though, so it is open to some question. And indeed, in 1979, uh, for the uh, quadricentennial of Drake's Landing, uh, the I, I forget who who put it together, but it's a like a California Historical Society or something like that put together the um the, uh, this book Lost Harbor, in which scholar Warren Hanna goes through all of the possible cases in a in a relatively sober and and well thought out way. The only downside to this book is that it's from 1979, and there is a better book out there now called Port of the Dragon, uh, which was done by a guy named Laird Nelson, which I don't think I have. I have a different book about Drake's landing already called Drake's Secret Voyage, which is very cool, um, or The Secret Voyage of Francis Drake. Uh, but uh, this was a, a useful addition to the topic. It, it's good stuff. Uh, you get your pirates, you get your mythical Californias. You got yourself a stew, Robin. Uh, next up, we have a Daniel Morgan, Revolutionary Rifleman, by Don Higginbotham. Straight up biography of Dan Morgan, uh, one of the great unsung uh, patriot heroes of the American Revolution. He and his company of backwoods uh, riflemen from uh, North Carolina were critical at, at some battles and certainly a force to be reckoned with at other ones. Uh, most American soldiers, like most British soldiers, used the good old smoothbore brown bass musket and the British also had rifle teams. Captain Ferguson famously did not shoot George Washington with his rifle at the Battle of Brandywine. But America, in the business of needing myths, decided that the coonskin clad Kentucky rifleman uh, would be the symbol of our of our great land, not the uh, militiaman who takes his brown best off of his uh, grocery store shelves. And so... Dan Morgan became sort of a, a symbol for, for I think, uh, certainly as, as the West was being expanded by the West, I mean, Kentucky and the Midwest uh, of the, the, the notion that without the West, there'd be no America, which is obviously a, a notion that has got some historiographic and sociological weight to it. But uh, this one, this book sort of just takes the notion of Dan Morgan out of that and just says, 
seriously, what's going on with this guy, Dan Morgan? What was his, you know, contribution to the war? What kind of person was he? So it's, it's a, it's a good biography of a guy that is usually. It's a man behind the myth book. Exactly. Um, and it, it doesn't really go that deep into the myth. It's not about the myth of the rifleman. It's about the human being, Dan Morgan. Uh, now there's a, a subject that tells you a lot about any historical society that is also something you often want to leave out of a historical portrayal in gaming because, uh, you can have all sorts of people reaching for the X cards, uh, and that's sex work. Uh, which brings us to City of Eros, New York City, Prostitution and the Commercialization of Sex, 1790 to 1920 by Timothy J. Guilfoyle. Yeah, the, tr- the only trouble with this book is, well, I mean, like all books on, on this topic, it's, it's too short and there's not enough, there's not enough previous work done to provide you a, a big body of evidence. I mean, there is a big body of evidence. It's just littered all over uh, police department records and newspapers. And so it's very hard to pull together. And so that's a big span. That's a bunch yeah. of different societies that all mm-hmm. were in New York city. Right. And, um, and Guilfoyle of course ends his book in 1920. So right as it's getting good is, is one possible argument you could make, but it's, it's a good book on the topic. I have long been, uh, fascinated and have occasionally played a couple of games in uh, 19th century New York, the sort of gangs of New York era. Uh, so I feel like there's a lot of possibility there in the sort of weird activities that people were getting up to in um, uh, 1840s and 50s New York City. So this was sort of uh, a, a placeholder for doing that research. It's also just a vitally interesting topic on uh, a fairly interesting city, Robin. A lot of people find New York City fairly interesting. Uh, next, we come to uh, something that uh, a title that rings with the sort of portent that tells us that we're uh, right about World War II. Fateful choices, 10 decisions that changed the world, 1940 to 1941 by Ian Kershaw. Bunch of stuff happened in that uh, in those it two did. years. It did. Um, and Kershaw, uh, God bless him is trying to write a sober history, not a bunch of nonsense alternate history. He doesn't want to be an alternate historian. <laughs> he makes fun of alternate histories in his in, in his preface. But, but as soon as you start talking about choices, he's writing about choices. And he's a good enough historian to say, for these choices to have been meaningful, there must have been an alternative. And it is the job of the historian to find out what those alternative choices were. And so... For like two paragraphs at the end of each chapter, he lets out the little inner cool Ian Kershaw to, to, <laughs> to speculate. So it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it, it's not a groundbreaking historical research. Kershaw is a, is a great second, uh, secondary source historian. Uh, but it is very interesting. And if you don't know a lot about one of those choices, this is a great, uh, p- and very painless because he's a great writer. It's a great primer. So you start with, uh, London, uh, spring of 1940, when they decide to put Churchill instead of Lord Halifax in charge of the war. Big choice, obviously. Uh, then Hitler deciding to attack the Soviets, Japan deciding to attack America, uh, Mussolini getting into the war like a dummy, uh, Roosevelt doing Lend-Lease, Stalin ignoring the advice of his generals and spies is its own decision. And then Roosevelt uh, going from Lend-Lease to the undeclared war. Then, uh, Tokyo, um, deciding to, uh, on the specific attack on, on Pearl Harbor, uh, the previous was that they decided to, to get involved in the war in the first place and go after like French Indochina and whatnot. Uh, and then finally, uh, Hitler's decision to declare war on the United States. Um, uh, 
uh, and, or no, I'm sorry. Finally is the Vanze conference that decide and the decision to commit the Holocaust, um, which is the uh, sort of the, 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 uh, the, the culminating, uh, bad decision or, or it's certainly evil decision in a list of, uh, fairly iffy decisions, uh, all the way around. So it, it's, it's a good book. It, it's got, you know, sort of your, your very, uh, useful, uh, uh, meaty chunks of, uh, uh, of political history of the era. Um, it, if it's got a weakness, it's a little weaker on the military history than it is on the political, but that's, you know, that's because Kershaw is a political historian. So what are you going to do? So lots of people, when they hear uh, decisions in uh, 40 and 41 go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty momentous. But Fred Kaplan is here with a book called 1959, The Year Everything Changed. Uh, what changed in 1959? I would be hard pressed to tell you what changed in uh, 1959. Kaplan is using uh, 1959 as a sort of synecdoche for the 50s because he talks about, you know, in 1959, Jasper Johns and Miles Davis and Allen Ginsberg all sort of debuted, but they came out of somewhere. At the beginning of um, some civil rights uh, action happened in 59. But of course, if you were asking when the civil rights era began in America, you'd say either 1954 with Brown v. Board, or you'd say the decision to desegregate the army in Korea. Uh, so 59 is kind of a, it wasn't all the 60s is sort of the whole theme of the book. The invention of the birth control pill uh, it begins before 1959. It's allowed on the market in 1960, but in 1959, they must have done something with it. Um, he says, Oh, 59 is when we got into the war in Vietnam. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> we either got in much earlier, uh, or, uh, a few years later, depending on what you mean. We did things in Vietnam in 1959, but we were doing things in Vietnam for the whole decade on either side. The microchip, he says, is invented in 1959. Uh, you can make an argument that it was invented closer to 57, but again, he's trying to draw a, I, I think it's more, it's less that 1959, the year everything changed as 1959, the last year, uh, that things were recognizable to, you know, the previous generations that 1959 is not the year everything changed. 1959 is sort of the, the beginning of the wave that is going to change a lot of stuff in the next uh, couple of decades. And I think Kaplan's argument. 1959, the year before men stopped wearing hats for a while. Exactly. The, the, the year, the year we, uh, we um, uh, continued shaving, but some of us didn't. Yeah. So that's, that's basically what it is. Mostly it's there for fall of Delta green research. Um, and because it's short. So why not? Uh, next, we come uh, to another biography, Thaddeus Stevens, Scourge of the South by Fawn Brody. Uh, yeah, Fawn Brody has her problems as a biographer, although they do not include unriveting prose. Um, and this is about Thaddeus Stevens, who, of course, is the the great uh, Reconstruction Republican in uh, the uh, Senate uh, and his uh, desire to uh, punish the South for the Civil War and to elevate uh, the freed uh, uh, black man uh, to citizenship and how both of those desires ran on the rocks of inertia and money and everything else. But it's sort of a, a good battling uh, crusading hero story. Um, I have no idea if Fawn Brody finds, you know, dark and hideous secrets in Thaddeus Stevens life, but uh, it being Fawn Brody and he being human, I'm sure that she does. I, I picked it up because, He's a great American who, who did more for uh, for people he didn't have to do anything for than most people do, and uh, I didn't have anything on him specifically. I've got a bunch of Reconstruction books, but a lot of them are sort of going into it with the 
you know, uh, the, the pre-assumption of failure and Stevenson's, uh, Stevens life is going to be the opposite of that. Right. Right. Uh, now, uh, next we come to a couple of titles that uh, could become fodder for 19th century tradecraft huts. And the first one of those is Grant's secret service, the intelligence war from Belmont to Appomattox by William B. Feist. Okay. This book is a sequel, if you will, to one of the greatest books it has ever been my privilege to read, uh, Edwin Fischel's The Secret War for the Union. Uh, Edwin Fischel used to work for the National Security Agency, and he, when he got out, he said, I wonder who did my job in the Union Army? And it turned out no one had ever asked that question. And so he found the records of the Union Army's intelligence service from 1860 to 1863, the, the red tape was unsnipped from when it was tied up in 1865 and he unsnipped it and, and read it. And because it predated Grant taking over, it's just the first half of the war because uh, Grant kept his own records. And so, uh, he wrote an amazing book that sort of blew open the whole question of intelligence work during the civil war. But it, his sources ran out in 1863. This is the sequel of that because Fischl apparently, you know, met or the guy who wrote this book, uh, William Fies met Fischl in the preface. He talks about his great debt to Fischl and, and how Fischl encouraged him in his research and gave him pointers. And Feist tracked down Grant's records uh, and, and opened them up. And his argument is that uh, th there's a there's a great Grant quote on intelligence, which is something on the order of. Uh, I want you to stop telling me what Lee could do and start telling me what you're going to do about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's been used by people who traduced the uh, legacy of the greatest general America has ever produced to say that Grant was uninterested in intelligence. And no, he was uninterested in people not attacking is, is the, uh, is was, the real he thing. He was interested in the actual question. That wasn't right, the usual yeah. Why don't you tell me what I want to hear? Right, yeah. <laughs> he was saying, why don't you tell me something actionable? Right, exactly. Um, and so uh, this talks about Grant's uh, relationship with his intelligence work and how he slowly built up an intelligence network and operation led by uh, a fairly obscure uh, figure that uh, my my good uh, pal and military history, uh, military historian Dana Lombardi did a lecture on at uh, Dundercon about a guy named uh, George Sharp, uh, who is a fellow who basically created the intelligence apparatus uh, for uh, Grant's army. Actually, it was set up by Hooker uh, before Grant, and then Grant recognized a good thing when he took over and kept Sharp uh, in. And Sh Sharp called it the Bureau of Military Information, which was military intelligence in the uh, traditional sense of the word. So he wasn't a spy master per se, but he was maintaining uh, all of the information that was flooding in from uh, escaped slaves. He learned to interrogate Confederate uh, deserters or prisoners of war so that he could build up a table of organization. Um, he did all the things that you expect a military intelligence unit to do now. It's just that he invented it all. And um, uh, he worked with a um, uh, an architect, a Chicago architect named John Badcock, who was his map maker. And between the two of them, uh, they basically built Grant's unit to provide him uh, actionable intelligence, as you say. And uh, it's sort of the just the history of of of, of this unit and how Grant learned to 
uh, rely on it and, and, uh, used it basically to outflank Lee throughout the whole, uh, campaign in Virginia in 1864. And, uh, we're not done with Civil War spying because next up is Lincoln's spymaster, Thomas Haynes Dudley and the Liverpool Network by David Hepburn Milton. Yeah, this is, uh, Lincoln's spymaster is a, is a big, uh, lie. It's, he was not Lincoln's spymaster. He was one of Lincoln's, um, top men and he was the American consul in Liverpool. And because Liverpool is where the British were building all the Confederate commerce raiders, having an operation in Liverpool that at the very least could track that, uh, became paramount. And so Dudley, uh, wanted to go back to New Jersey. Um, but, he basically had to stay on after the war uh, to keep seizing Confederate ships that uh, had been, you know, built for the Confederacy and were therefore uh, uh, spoils of war and owed to America. So he basically uh, provided a continuity of, of administration into uh, the uh, Johnson administration and also, one assumes, did uh, something about the network of Confederate sympathizers in uh, the north of England, which was not the majority of most uh, of the north of England, because they made or rather, despite the fact that they made cloth, uh, were uh, pro uh, union, uh, not uh, pro Confederacy, because they didn't like slavery. Uh, they, it was a it was a big issue to uh, uh, factory workers that uh, if you could have slavery suddenly be legal in an English speaking country, they could see where that was going. And so they didn't like it. And so there's a, a lot of sort of um, uh, hated Britishers in side whiskers, but they themselves are operating in a sort of clandestine fashion. So you could turn it into a a fun um, spy versus spy story, sort of a, you know, like hunting the, 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 the fourth Reich type stuff, Odessa file. You, you could use, uh, Thomas Haynes Dudley for that, but Lincoln's spy master, that's a big ask. He's Lincoln's man in Liverpool is, is good enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not exactly central to the yeah. civil war. Right. Well, uh, what is central to this, uh, segment now is a commercial, which is going to fall in the center of it. And then we're going to kind of come back to paw through the second half of your bookshelf. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dads. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. And we're back with more books to look at, and uh, we're moving back into Fall of Delta Green territory with SOG, 
The Secret Wars of America's Commandos in Vietnam by John L. Plaster. Um, yeah, this is, uh, he was uh, part of the Studies and Observations Group, or MACV SOG, as it is often called. He served three tours and is telling sort of not just, you know, my experiences memoir. He tries to sort of build out at least something of an operational history of uh, the commandos and uh, the SOG basically operated in North Vietnam, in Laos, in Cambodia, in places that we were not supposed to be operating according to the uh, rules of the war. Um, and they did a lot of, uh, you know, uh, special operations type stuff. So the, the story itself is fairly familiar to people who, who, you know, who know about the Vietnam war. And, uh, I think it's more anecdotal and less, and less unit based than I'm, than I'm implying, but it is at least the attempt to tell a unit history, you know, uh, and then liven it up with anecdotes. So the, uh, you know, it's, it's good stuff. I've got other books on Mac V Saga. I've got other books on special operations in Vietnam. This was one by a guy who was there and has, you know, lots of one assumes, uh, first rate, exciting stories, like everything about Vietnam, people will yell at you about it, but it's, you know, it is what it is. And it's certainly good enough for fall of Delta green work. Uh, next we come to a, uh, another topic that is uh, central to uh, fall of Delta green. And that we've talked about uh, before on the show. Uh, Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control by Stephen Kinzer. Uh, there's a uh, several shelves of books about this uh, subject. What does this bring to the table? Uh, this is the biography of Sidney Gottlieb. And when someone is literally nicknamed the Black Sorcerer of the CIA, you know that I'm going to buy the biography of him. <laughs> <laughs> and this is obviously, uh, MK Ultra has, uh, as you say, spawned a, a bookshelf of books on his own. This is the biography of the man who was at the center of MK Ultra, Sidney Gottlieb. He was, I believe, a research chemist, um, and then became head of this, uh, CIA's, uh, OST Office of Science and Technology and, uh, helped run, if not direct, uh, MK Ultra and is, uh, uh, he looks creepy in glasses. He's everything you want in a, in a, in a weird, good, bad guy. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we haven't had a biography of Gottlieb. Now we do. I'm not sure we learn a ton more about MK Ultra in this book, but it, if you don't have an MK Ultra book, this is, this is going to give you the, the basics as well as some insight into the, the misunderstood mastermind or the far too well understood yes. mastermind, depending on your, on your the real take. life Hugo strange, the real life doc savage, possibly since it's operating on people's brains to remove their criminality was his, uh, modality. I kind of stick with Hugo strange. On that yeah. One. Hugo strange is, is a better case. Cause I don't think that Sidney Gottlieb, uh, shot anyone with anesthetic bullets. Yeah, right. He shot them with a lot of stuff, but I don't think that was it. It probably wasn't jacked either. Um, next we come to good hunting an American spy master story by Jack divine. All right. Divine was a 30 year CIA veteran. He, uh, ran, uh, the C secret war in Afghanistan. He tried to put the CIA into the, uh, search for Pablo Escobar. He was in Chile when Allende fell as the back of the book says. <laughs> and, uh, he certainly had nothing to do with Iran Contra. He was there, you know, he just likes the Pisco. He was enjoying and, it, sure. And, and he certainly uh, had nothing to do with Iran-Contra. No, goodness, no. That was another guy named Jack Devine. And uh, also, he did a little spy hunting as well. So he's sort of done everything. And uh, this is his uh, how we run the agency. And, of course, because he's a cowboy, 
in the CIA uh, tradition uh, between the cowboys and the analysts. His argument is we have too many analysts and not enough cowboys and we're launching big expensive wars instead of cool cowboy ops that could do the same thing. So there's a degree of, um, of self-dealing there. But again, every, I think we've talked before, every spy memoir should be shelved as fiction <laughs> if possible. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it is what it is. It's a, it's, it's an autobiography of a guy who was, who was on the scene uh, in a lot of stuff and, uh, and, and, and vetted by his, uh, by his agency. And like, like all books about the CIA, the CIA makes sure you don't, you know, publish anything that's, uh, they insisted that the Lloyd Gore be uh, removed. Yeah. Well, they, they keep that stuff out and the, uh, the UFOs, they probably took those out too, but, uh, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's not the Navy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Come on people. <laughs> it's called uh, central for a reason. He rose to the rank of deputy director of operations, which is pretty high. I think it's the second ranking guy in the CIA. Uh, so pretty good. Um, and again, since your player characters are going to be cowboys anyway, uh, why not, uh, why not read Dudley and, and get on the, on the side of, of the guys you're going to be playing. Right. Or, or even if you're the token analyst, who's, uh, along for the ride and reminding everybody to fill out their expense reports, you, you need to know what the cowboys are doing. Uh, next we come to, uh, the corporation, an epic story of the Cuban American underworld, by T.J. English. Yeah, this is the guy that wrote Havana Nocturne. And so this is sort of the sequel uh, to Havana Nocturne. Havana Nocturne was how the mob got run out of Cuba by Castro and what Cuba was like when it was a mob playground. And now this is so what happened? And all of the uh, the mob basically leaves the stage. And now we're talking about the Cuban exiles. And after, especially after Mariel, when a lot of uh, Cuban criminals uh, were deported to Florida by Castro, the Cuban gang underground uh, blew up and the corporation is how the Cuban community ran it and uh, or controlled it, I guess, is the way or channeled it, harnessed it. And his argument is that because the Cuban exile community had special ties to political actors in Florida in a way that other ethnic groups do not, it was able to sort of jump the Cuban mob up the rung of, of gangs and put them in, in charge of Florida basically in the eighties. And when you have the, you know, immense blow up of cocaine trafficking and uh, TJ English is doing a, again, one of those great underworld histories. So, uh, we've talked, uh, we, we just mentioned that spy, fi uh, spy memoirs are all non, are all fiction. Underworld histories, since they depend on underworld informants, you take what you can get. Um, most, uh, uh, criminals, uh, who talk to journalists, uh, either say, we didn't ever do nothing, or they say, oh, we did so much more than they, than we got away with so much. Uh, both of those are lies. So, you know, you have to just trust that, uh, the journalist can walk you through it. Uh, TG English is a fairly reputable, uh, historian of crime, but again, it's, it's like being a fairly reputable historian of intelligence. You're, you're a historian of deliberate liars and there's only so much you can get. But again, if you're uh, looking at, uh, uh, setting a game in the Miami vice era, or even, you know, down to, uh, the, the late nineties, um, era of narcos, uh, running a, a nice black agents or other sort of techno thriller game, uh, in that era. This is good stuff for you, and it will give you lots of uh, names to drop with, I'm certain, 
enthralling nicknames, which is, of course, the best reason to read crime books. Now, we've had some very impressive subtitles uh, so far in this list, but uh, not to be outdone, uh, we now finally come to one where the final word in this lengthy subtitle tells us where the author is from. A dictionary of the underworld, being the vocabularies of racketeers, criminals, convicts, beggars, tramps, crooks, and spivs by Eric Partridge. Uh, this was originally written in 49, but you've got the uh, 1961 edition, which no doubt includes updated lingo. Updated lingo. As, as, and as we know, in 1959, everything changed. So I'm glad that they got a new edition of this book out after that. Uh, this I got at the great Moe's Books in uh, Berkeley. And oh my goodness, it is so magnificent, Robin. I can't even begin to tell you. Do you know what a langret is? Uh, oddly, I do not. Uh, langret is false dice that are long on one side. So right there. That's a thing. That's a thing that you can say. Payoff is pretty obvious, but Glim, do you know what Glim is? Hmm, I, I have no clue what Glim is. It is a dark lantern. So when you say you, you've got a, a Glim, uh, that means a dark lantern. And if you're Glim in the paw, then you've been burned in the hand, like I assume it happens when you're holding your dark lantern too long. So there's there's so much, so much joy. I, I love, uh, you know, the, these sort of books of slang and then books of criminal slang are even crazier because, again, I don't know if you remember back when uh, the New York Times covered itself with with uh, shame and ashes by printing imaginary slang fed to it by surly teens. <laughs> but I suspect there are centuries of surly teens in this book uh, feeding slang to earnest Victorian researchers, and I, I can't wait. Uh, it, it's so great. Um, just having this is, is a joy. I, 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 you know, if you, if you don't get it, you don't get it, but my goodness. Right. You can certainly use it for inspiration for making up your own lingo for perhaps, uh, you know, surly ninjas. Right. Exactly. Or, or, um, uh, or if you're playing a sort of a street level fantasy game, this could be the, the, uh, your halfway to thieves can't already just with this book. Uh, now we come to African Vodun, Art, Psychology and Power by Suzanne Preston Blyer or Blier, perhaps. Yeah. I don't, I don't have any, uh, information on whether it's Blyer or Blier, but, uh, I, uh, I do know that this is not about the, uh, Caribbean Vodou or Voodoo. This is about the original Vodun in, uh, West Africa and how it is uh, tangled up with art. And this is an psychological, sociological art history of Vodun imagery and sculpture and all that good stuff in West Africa. And then it also talks about uh, the use of the Vodun uh, ritually, but it's, it's an art history book. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a magic history book. And so it's, uh, it's it's super well illustrated, obviously, and it talks about you know continuities between the Vodun and the West African or the the and the Caribbean uh, African diaspora. It, it it talks about what it means if one thing is made out of metal and another thing is made out of wood, and, and so it's it's a sort of an angle into voodoo that you don't see even in the catalogs from various uh, exhibitions, which is what a lot of uh, the uh, very good uh, voodoo books have been. Over the last, say, 30 years, uh, they've been catalogs of museum ex ex exhibitions. They are still talking as though it's an ethnological exhibit instead of an art exhibit. And this is a, a an attempt to sort of art historically center 
the the ritual objects. And so it's 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 kind of wild to think that no one had done this before Suzanne Preston Blyer slash Blier, but uh, apparently this is the only book like that. I have another book on on West African voodoo, but it's it, it's very much an anthropological text, like I mentioned. So uh, ultimately. Uh, we come to the secrets of the universe in 100 symbols. That's a lot of secrets. The author is Sarah Bartlett. Um, this is probably not a book to buy if you, you know, are, are looking for a deep, in-depth dive into uh, symbology. Uh, but it's a book uh, to pick up if you don't have another book of symbols. It, it's very engaging. It's very pretty. And it is exuberantly uh, cross-cultural. So you've got a whole page of, of Hindu gods. And then you've got another whole page of Navajo sand paintings. You've got sort of very basic symbols like your, like your circle or your cross or your swastika and your crazily complex uh, symbols of alchemy. Um, there's all manner of, of, of good stuff. And it's really, you know, I, I suspect that if you are super occult woke, if you are a consulting occultist in your own group, this book is not going to teach you a lot. But it will also uh, give you a lot of good visuals and maybe there will be of the hundred symbols, there will be two or three that you'll be like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And you can sort of turn it right. And that's that's really what these books are, are for is it's not for me. They're not books that I'm like, goodness, a hundred symbols. I wonder what they could be. But there's going to be one thing in there or the or the Navajo sand painting symbology. And even if uh, uh, Sarah Bartlett is wrong about Navajo sand painting symbology, because who can say it's gameable, right? It, it gives you a first cut. And that's, it's, it's, there's like a percentile dice worth of them. If you need yeah. a random idea. Right. Uh, yeah. Also that if you, if you are uh, randomly generating heraldry for your fantasy city, I'm sure this would be great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, these are sort of um, uh, art books and primers. And if you uh, don't need the primer, it's still, it's still a lovely thing and you can get it, uh, pretty cheaply, as indeed I did. Now, uh, long-time listeners to the Ken's Bookshelf segment might have noted that uh, this selection has been pretty sober. A lot of very respectable uh, subtitles, uh, scholarly approaches, uh, I think nary a, a thin margin among them. Uh, but uh, just for old time's sake, to maintain uh, a continuity with uh, other bookshelves, we finally come to the Way Out World by radio legend Long John Nebel. Yeah, this is Long John Nebel is, I think we've, have we talked about him on the show? Uh, he, I'm sure he's been mentioned. Yeah, he's uh, a Long Island disc jockey, I believe, or New York City disc jockey, who sort of turned into doing a talk radio show. He was Art Bell for the 60s and uh, 50s, and he has, uh, in this book, uh, explored the magical weirdness of what happens when you run a late night talk show in New York and people are allowed to call in and talk to you. So uh, amongst the topics mentioned are extrasensory perception, unidentified flying objects, visits to other planets, healers, reincarnation, mediums and mystics, strange creatures of the earth, time travel, and unusual inventions. Um, uh, Long John Neville eventually became famous uh, by being the uh, husband of alleged mind control subject Candy Jones. Uh, but this predates, I believe, his marriage to Candy Jones. I think it does anyway. And uh, this is a 
uh, stuff people have called in about book. It's again, like I say, it's by a radio personality. So don't be looking for your John Keel stuff and certainly don't be looking for your Jacques Valley footnotes, but, uh, it is a document, uh, of a place and time. And in this case, the place and time is New York in 1961. So again, very, uh, fun fall of Delta green material. And also this is, this is what uh, the weird world actually looked like on the ground. So you don't have the, the later generations of, Oh, no one ever thought that about UFOs. Uh, that would be crazy talk. It's like, nope, this is the crazy talk, people. Uh, well, once we've uh, got to the period crazy talk and the period uh, precisely for the beginning of Fall of Delta Green, I think that we can uh, bid a temporary farewell to our beloved Ken's bookshelf and uh, anticipate its eventual return. Uh, but uh, something that will definitely return is this podcast, a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagown. Art Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from vanishing by emulating such missionary Patreon backers as Luke Steyer, Robert Dean, Andrew Collins, Chris Lydon, and Alexander Zimmerman. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your affinities with such hit shirts as Cthulhu is Woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>